0: If you have ever built anything, whether a house or some other type of building, if you've ever done any gardening or field work, um, whether it's a small backyard plot or extensive farm fields, if you've ever done any of that work, you understand that it will probably take a lot more time than you first thought, right, and that there will likely be setbacks along the way. You might be slowed down by bad weather. Maybe the price of supplies goes through the roof. Often equipment or tools will break down. Sometimes even the hired hands might not be as dependable as you'd hoped. Deliveries get delayed, people get sick or hurt. Sometimes people have to quarantine for two weeks in the middle of the project. The list of delays or causes of delays goes on and on, right? And at the end of the project, you might think to yourself, well, that wasn't so bad. Or, I am never doing that again. But there's also, sometimes at least, a sense of accomplishment. And for Christians at least, there ought to be a sense of thankfulness that you're finally able to enjoy the fruit of your labors. Whether you're canning your own tomatoes, harvesting beans or preparing your first dinner in your new house. But it's also true that we sometimes take for granted some of the things that we had previously so worked so hard for. We get sick of eating all those green beans. We start to complain about some of the design elements of the house. The list goes on. But one thing that we so quickly forget in these matters too often is God's role in all of our work. He sends the rain, He controls viruses, He's not uninvolved in economic factors. So let's bring this concept as we think about building something, let's bring this into the church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus declared to Peter and really to the rest of the disciples who were there, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And for 2,000 years now, Jesus has been building his church. If we looked at the the broad history of the church from a purely human point of view, we would probably say that it, it seemed to get off to a really strong start. Repeatedly, in the early chapters of Acts, we read about thousands of people being added to the number of the saints. But then the storms of persecution arose, and the church was forced to flee from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And on the ground, I'm sure at the time, it felt like defeat and discouragement. At least for some, right? But it really was Jesus fulfilling His plan and purpose for the construction of the church. And the church has continued to be built by Christ for 2,000 years. It has persevered through not only persecution, but also the development of of extra-biblical doctrines, unregenerate church leadership at times. Splits and schisms, crusades and inquisitions, and even the counter-reformation. The church has survived all the while Christ's promises continue. The gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. And so in today's passage, Paul is giving us some insight into how Christ is building his church So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read just verses 1 through 17. Then we will pray and ask God to help us this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul continues his thought and he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Just pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning, help us to understand Speak to us through your word today. I pray that I would decrease, that Christ would increase, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in many ways, at first glance, um, if you remember last week and reading chapter 2, at first glance, this chapter might seem like a kind of a radical shift in language and content from from the previous ideas that we looked at last week. But in reality, it's it's really just a continuation of the same thought. See, Paul is is weaving here a correction for the Corinthian mindset. He's bringing them back and forth from worldliness to godliness, from human thinking to Christian thinking. He's already done, um, back in chapter 1, he's already done a little bit of preliminary work in, in calling out the church's tendency to pick their favorite teachers just like the world does. And he's pointed out the divisions and the quarreling that have developed because of this. And so he wrote there in chapter 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And He's gone on to remind them, how they've been saved, how he arrived in Corinth preaching the the folly of the cross of Jesus Christ. And subsequently, he has reminded them that it is through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the secret and hidden things of God have been revealed. He has told us his plan, he has given us his word, and he's given us the ability to understand it. Christ is proclaimed, and they have believed and are saved. And and as a result, Paul is able to declare to the saints at the church at Corinth, we have the mind of Christ. As Christians, we are not like this world. We are completely different from this world. And so we must act like it. We must think like Christ thinks and not like the world thinks. I mentioned that Paul is... I use the word weaving. He's weaving this as he writes. He's moving back and forth, comparing that worldly thinking to Christian thinking. But now in chapter 3, when we get to this, it's as if he stops and says, hang on a minute here, folks, we have a problem. We have a problem. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, I didn't point this out last week when we were going through chapter 2. But in chapter 2, verse 6, and really throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul switches in verse 1 from using the... uh, In chapter 2, verse 1, he uses the first person singular, I. He says, I, when I came to you. But in verse 6, he switches that to we. So verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 says this, Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So if we compare chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, we see that Paul switches from I'm doing this to we're doing this. And that we there, he's probably referring to himself and Apollos and Cephas and Christ that he named in chapter 1. All of those favorite preachers that the people were dividing and quarreling over. He's saying they all preach the same message. Although we should also note that this statement actually is true among all of the apostles. They're all preaching the same message. They're all imparting the same wisdom. But now in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul switches back to the first person. First person singular, I. And the wording of this, look at the words of chapter 3, verse 1, and, and look back at the words at chapter 2, verse 1. They're almost, they're very similar at least. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But back in chapter 2, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Just look at these verses. Paul is saying, when I came to you, I did not come as someone from the world. But I have to talk to you, he says in verse chapter 3, I have to talk to you as if you were people of the world. I didn't come to you as a servant of the world. I didn't come to you proclaiming a message as the world proclaims it, but I have to talk to you like worldly people, he says. And For the first time in this letter, really in chapter 3, but certainly not the last time, Paul directly criticizes the church. We could say that there is is criticism throughout the first chapter when he first brings up this subject of church divisions, but now he is very direct about it. But even in being critical of them, he does so using, do you notice this? He uses a close family type of language. Listen to verses 1 to 4 again. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? One says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human?" But focus on that idea of Paul giving them milk. If you're really quiet, you can hear children. You have to be really quiet to hear them. There's a lot of kids. Some of those kids are still drinking milk. Right? That's the image that Paul has. I'm feeding you like a mother feeds an infant, a newborn. That's the image that Paul is getting across here. Even though he's being critical of them, he's being critical as a parent, saying, I still fed you. I'm still taking care of you. He addresses them as infants in Christ. They are in Christ, meaning that they are actual believers and therefore they are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, but they have not yet put to death the deeds of the flesh. And Paul actually names two of these these besetting sins that the church is participating in. Jealousy and strife. And these two sins specifically are often named together in in a bunch of Paul's writings, a bunch of the letters. He lists sins in, in various letters, and these two are often named together. In fact, we understand from our own hearts and our own dealings with people that jealousy often leads to strife does it not jealousy often leads to strife James in his letter chapter four verses one and two he uses even stronger language than Paul when he says this he says what causes Quarrels and fights among you. That's strife. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. That's jealousy. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Well, as far as I know, um, it hasn't come to murder for the Corinthians at this point. They're involved in some pretty heinous sins. They're sinning against each other in some pretty terrible ways. Later in the letter, Paul will address them, but he never has to tell them to stop killing each other. And so we can praise the Lord for that. They're involved in jealousy and strife, but it hasn't yet come to the point where they're involved in murdering each other. But it is clear that they are comparing themselves and their preferred teachers to each other, and they're trying to assert authority over each other, over one another throughout the church. This is worldly activity, Paul says. Paul, as I said, he lists jealousy and strife. He actually says that they are works of the flesh. And so if you think that James was being maybe overly dramatic, saying that jealousy leads to you desire and you do not have, so you murder, that jealousy leads to murder. If James is being a little dramatic, listen to what Paul says. This is Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things... Will not inherit the kingdom of God. And those things are happening in the church, the works of the flesh. He also calls them in Romans chapter 13, he says they are works of darkness. In Romans 13, verse 12 to 14 says this He says, Let us cast off the works of darkness to put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The church has a a tendency to walk in the darkness. The church has a tendency to make provision for the flesh. And jealousy and quarreling or strife are so-called, often they're just the respectable sins, right? The sins that we just sort of like brush aside, that we don't deal with. They're lumped in with sins that we all agree, in Paul's lists here, they're lumped in with sins that we all agree are not respectable. You could go back and look through that list again. and Some of those things are even uncomfortable to say. They're not respectable, but Paul puts them in the same, the Scriptures put them in the same list. We have no problem calling out drunkenness. We have no problem calling out immorality, which Paul will do later in this letter. But we so often easily overlook the sins of jealousy and quarreling or strife, which is where Paul begins. In correcting the church, he's going to have to get to some of those other unrespectable sins. He's going to get to immorality that is rampant in the church. He's going to get to even drunkenness in the church, as some of them are getting drunk on communion wine. But he starts with jealousy and strife. He's going right to the heart of the matter. As James said, our passions are at war within us. But what does this have to do with teachers? Because because we will divide into, into factions over any number of things, right? Humans will divide up over all kinds of different things. We divide into factions over Ford and Chevy. We divide into factions over John Deere versus IH, or there's Ohio versus Michigan. I think even soccer players have factions. I don't know much about sports. But at the root of this issue... In the church, Paul tells us, is verse four. Are you not being merely human when you divide up like that? Why I follow Paul and another says I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? See, sometimes factions are just—they're just playful rivalries, right? Like like one state versus another, one football team versus—they're just playful rivalries. Sometimes they're brand loyalty, which in the grand scheme of things, in reality, doesn't mean anything. But in this case, the symptom of the root sins of jealousy and strife is that the Corinthians, they, they, the symptom of that root sin is that they have an improper view of their teachers, of their leaders, of those who have taught them the word of God and are keeping watch over their souls as those who will have to give an account. They have an improper view of them. They have an improper view of those whose work will be tested as by fire, as he's going to say in just a few minutes, which will either survive or it will be completely burned up and destroyed. Well, at this point in the letter, if you remember, I'm referring back to the first couple of chapters quite a bit, but if you remember from chapter 1... he had said that there are at least four factions in the church Paul and Apollos and Cephas, was Peter, and even Christ. But at this point, he only refers to himself and to Apollos, probably because we know that Apollos was at least in the region around Corinth, if not in Corinth itself, um, probably not long after Paul had moved on to his next destination. And so people, the the Corinthian church, those in the church there, uh, were likely personally familiar with both of them. They knew Paul. He had led them to Christ. They knew Apollos. He had been their pastor after Paul had left. And So he um, addresses these two specifically. And each of them had their own following in the church, or really I should say that the church in its spiritual immaturity developed into factions around each of their teachings. And and probably it happens after they're gone. Probably after Apollos and Paul were both gone, they start remembering the good old days. But remember what he said back in chapter 2, verse 6. Let me read this again. He said, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. You're not supposed to be immature. You've been given God's wisdom, he's saying to them. And just as he had pointed in the first chapter to God's foolish message of the gospel... He, and his foolish means of spreading the gospel through preaching, uh, using the proclamation, the preaching, the heralding of the good news of Jesus Christ to save them, just as he has done that earlier, now Paul is pointing to God's work in their growth and maturity, and he uses teachers to do this. He uses teachers to do this. And, and I just want to be clear about something as we work through this. I'm going to use the word teachers, even though Paul doesn't really use it in this passage. Um, and what I mean by teachers is just simply those, um, Hebrews thirteen seven says, those who spoke to you the word of God, which is the work of pastors and teachers from Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's clear from the context, but I just want to be clear. I'm using that word, but he's talking about pastors and teachers, preachers, those who have come in and taught the word. He's actually not being clear because it might not only be pastors, it might also be their Sunday school teachers, anyone who is teaching to them. And so God uses teachers of the word of God to accomplish his purpose So let's look at these next two sections, which really are the function of teachers here. The the first function of teachers that Paul brings up, he calls them essentially field hands in verses 5 to 9. Just look at verse 5. He says, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now I've introduced you to Apollos before. I've talked about him several times even just now. And he had a similar ministry to Paul's, although when he began, uh, when Apollos began his ministry of preaching and teaching, in reality he was he hadn't heard of Jesus yet. He knew that a Messiah was coming, but he'd only heard John's John the Baptist's message, uh, which was a call to repent. And so he was still looking forward to the Messiah. He had not yet heard that Jesus had already come. But once he did hear, once he was taught fully, he believed and he continued to preach the good news. What Paul is simply saying here is is that there is no rivalry between me and Apollos. Both he and Apollos are servants of the Lord. We have different tasks that have come from the Lord. And and our success, each of their success as as teachers of God's Word, as preachers, as pastors, it depends entirely on the will of God. In fact, Paul acknowledges that, uh, that Apollos, who as I said probably arrived in Corinth sometime after Paul had left, Paul is really acknowledging that he carried on the work that Paul had begun. He didn't, if you look at verse 6, he says, I, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Apollos didn't dig up Paul's seeds. He didn't retill the ground. The seeds had already been planted. Apollos simply watered them. He continued the work that Paul had began, begun. He had a, a complementary ministry. Apollos' ministry fit nicely with Paul's ministry for the purpose of building up the church. And so, in Paul's view, even though he himself was an apostle, he was chosen and sent specifically by Jesus, and Apollos was not an apostle. Apparently, he went because he wanted to, if we could put it that way. Still, Paul saw them as equals. In fact, through these Verses from verses 5 to 9 in in four parallel statements, each verse, 5 to 8 really. The work of God, uh, Paul explains the work of God and their dependence on him. And these parallel statements are just simple. They're really just these first four of these five verses. So look at verse 5 again. He says, What then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So both Apollos and Paul are servants. And and that word is where we get our our word deacon from. They're, They're ministers. Sometimes we translate that. They serve at the pleasure of another. And in this case, it is the Lord specifically who has assigned this task, each of their tasks, to each of them. They're just servants, he says. This is God's work. The second statement is verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. This is clearly where we begin to see the idea of the work of field hands, right? Paul's task, assigned to him by God, was to plant the field. What he means by that is to evangelize the lost by preaching the gospel. and The gospel of Jesus Christ that calls them into fellowship with God. That was Paul's task. Apollos' task, assigned to him by God, was to water that field, to preach, so as to see the church rooted and grounded in love, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul planted, and Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the growth. But Paul doesn't stop there. See, he's already already pictured these, if we could put it this way, these celebrity preachers, Paul and Apollos, the ones that everybody knows. He pictures these celebrity preachers with their own big followings as humble field hands. They're out there engaged in manual labor. I wish more celebrity pastors would, would understand this. We're just engaged in the Lord's work. It's just the manual labor of spreading seeds and watering the garden. But third, look at verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The planter and the waterer are nothing but God is everything Paul is saying the planter and the waterer are completely replaceable God can and we pray that God will raise up a generation of pastors and teachers to feed his flock after us e- even or maybe we should we should be especially praying that here God will replace me one day I will be dead One day I will be gone and some other pastor will occupy this pulpit. No church should be centered around the personality of the pastor. It's not about me. God gives the growth. God has been working here at Logansville Church to grow you to spiritual maturity, to grow us to spiritual maturity. and He continues to do that. You've probably heard this before, but there was a German bishop uh, from the 1700s. His name was Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, which is a terrific name. And he is ironically remembered for saying, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I think it's ironic that he's remembered for that. (laughs) Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. It's not about you right? Only God gives the growth. And then fourthly, in verse 8, says this, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The planter and the waterer are one. That word one can sometimes be translated equal, but it really means in union and concord. It means that they're doing their jobs with the same goal. Every Christian preacher is called to faithfully get up and preach the word, and God will reward them for their work. The next guy that comes after me, whoever it is, whatever year it is, the next person to come in and be the pastor of this church is called to do the z- same thing that I'm doing. Just get up and preach the word. God will reward them for their work. This means that they are interchangeable, even Paul and Apollos. Apollos. They are replaceable. And what Paul is really doing here is he's taking the focus off of himself and off of Apollos or any other preacher that the church likes to prop up and follow, and he puts it squarely on the one who has commissioned and sent them. Squarely on Jesus himself. He's not saying that they're nothing. For God is using them and and will reward them according to their labor. But he's criticizing the church's tendency to say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow David Jeremiah, or I follow John MacArthur, or I follow Dana Kitter. But it's time to switch the metaphor, as Paul often does as he writes, and he switches it from a field to a building. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers... You are God's field, God's building. Consider this statement. These servants, Paul and Apollos, and we really can apply this to all uh, faithful pastors throughout the centuries, they're all just simply fellow laborers who belong to God. That's what the statement means. We are God's servants. We belong to God. We exist to do His work. And you, the church, is God's field, God's building, to switch the metaphor. So Paul has successfully torn down their argument for church factions, and he turns his attention now to the work of building up the body of Christ. And so this is the second function of teachers in this it's God's building. Master builders, he says. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it let each one take care how he builds upon it Now Paul is going to come back to this idea later but this first phrase in verse 10 is, is his way of saying that he, is, he, he used the spiritual gift that God had given him to lay the foundation upon which the Corinthian church is built. Namely, the foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this first statement, according to the grace of God given to me, that is a reference to a spiritual gift that is given from God for him to specifically do the work that God has called him to. He's going to come back to spiritual gifts later in the letter, but that's what he's saying here. And now someone else, another spirit-filled preacher, another spirit-gifted preacher is building on the foundation that Paul has laid. He's probably talking about Apollos specifically, but really this is any pastor after him. He's also quick to point out, I should note, That teachers must take care how they build upon the foundation. Well, what does this mean? Teachers must take care. It's the end of verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, he's going to explain beginning in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, just stop there. The foundation is not any celebrity preacher. The foundation is not any local pastor. The foundation is not the money of a prominent family. The foundation is not tradition. We've always done it this way. The foundation is not my family has always gone to that church. Of course I'm a part of that church. My grandmother was a member there. The foundation is Christ. Listen to what he wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 19 he says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. He's saying the same thing there that he is saying here although maybe even more succinctly in Ephesians. And in order to fully understand what he says next, that we are being built into this temple, those verses from Ephesians 2 that I just read, with those in mind, listen to this next section. Look at verse 12. Now if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, as we think about this, there's a couple of concepts to keep in mind. The first is that throughout Scripture, fire is a means of God's judgment. Throughout Scripture, fire is a means of God's judgment. That's what he's referring to. He's talking about judgment. So listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 8 to 13. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that each should reach repentance." because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promises, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, remember, we are talking about the building up of the church. And so the things that we do, the stuff that we spend money on, the programs that we insist upon, etc., are, are, they, are they useless for eternity? Peter tells us that there's going to be a day when it's all going to be burned away. That's God's judgment. And God is going to judge what are we built upon? What are we built upon? This would be, this, well, this would be my opportunity to go on my, a rant about my time in youth ministry about being told at one point that my job was to organize nerf gun wars and pizza parties. I will refrain. I will wisely refrain from going on that rant this morning. (laughs) Instead, I want to just point you to this second concept to keep in mind here. And it's the connection that Paul is making to passages such as Exodus chapter 35 just turn back to Exodus chapter 35 I want you to see something in Exodus 35 verse 30 this is part of the law early portions of the law God has given the people of Israel the Ten Commandments a few chapters earlier He has now started to explain certain aspects of the law, and he comes to the construction of the tabernacle. Listen to key words that we have read now from 1 Corinthians 3. So this is Exodus 35. I'm going to start in verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Basilel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, "...with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of uh, Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan." He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or a designer or an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen or by a weaver or by any sort of workman or skilled designer. I'll turn back to 1 Corinthians 3. Did you catch that in that passage there in Exodus that they are spirit filled? They're building the temple as a as a skilled master builder, they're crafting the temple of God. These are craftsmen. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's still talking about craftsmen who are spirit-filled, but they're building a new and better tabernacle, a new and better house of God not made with hands. The work of pastors and teachers and ministers is building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all are mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. Paul is telling us here that faithful teachers will be rewarded in glory. Although some will enter glory smelling like smoke, because while they are generally genuinely in Christ, the vast majority of their efforts, the vast majority of their work will be burned up as useless in the fires of judgment. Think nerf guns. The point is be careful who you follow. Or as verse 10 says, let each one of you take care how he builds upon the foundation of Christ. And then finally, I want you to notice here, because now he's really bringing it back to that, that passage in Exodus 35 or, or even some other passages of Scripture. And he talks about the judgment of teachers. Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. He's saying it explicitly. Have you figured out why Paul has brought up the judgment of teachers yet? It's because of, in some cases, it's because of the fickle nature of church members. Have you thought about this? Why is... Why is Paul so harsh on the teachers? Why does he hold them to such a high standard? I think one of the reasons he's going to charge Timothy later in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Um, I mentioned part of this in Sunday school. But he says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We are prone to accumulating teachers to suit our own passions. We are prone to form, forming factions. And you know what? Teachers, pastors, are prone to people-pleasing. Can you see how this is a recipe for destruction without the Holy Spirit? We're prone to telling you what you want to hear. But you are God's temple, and God's Spirit dwells in you. And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, Paul says. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Paul is telling the local church, Paul is telling the First Baptist Church of Corinth, or the Corinth Community Church, or whatever they called themselves, that they are God's temple, and the temple of God was holy because it was the dwelling place of God. This concept... The, the idea of planting and watering and growing. The laying of a foundation and building of the church. That's a, that's a local concept, is it, is it not? When we talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, when we talk about Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that those who are in Christ have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it. That we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The believers, those who have trusted in Christ, are indwelt, have the, the promised Holy Spirit. When we talk about that, we need to also understand that when we gather together, the Spirit is with us. We gather as God's temple, the holy place where God dwells with us. And so Paul is talking to the local church He's talking to that specific church, and it applies to us as a church. You don't get to say, I'm a farmer, but I don't have any fields, right? You don't get to say, I'm a, I'm a builder, but I, I, I don't have a hammer or a nail gun. I don't actually do it. There's simply no picture in the scriptures of Christians growing outside of a local church. Now zoom out for a second and think big picture. Paul is presenting an alternative society in which the crucified and resurrected King and Lord dwells. And he dwells by his Spirit now. And the amazing thing about all of this is that in an assembled church, when we come together like this to sing and pray and worship the Lord together, we see a foretaste of heaven, of eternity. When we gather to sing praises to our King, we are joining with the voices of the heavenly choir, and it is supposed to give us hope and expectation of eternity to come. Frankly, this is where I take kind of a left turn, frankly, this is one of the reasons that we've moved to a weekly communion. Because when we gather to worship, We are reflecting the worship that is happening in heaven. We are among the voice of the great multitude. And so as we look with eager expectation, listen to Revelation 19 verse 6. Actually, 6 to 9, it says this, Then I heard, John writes, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure." pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and then he says said to me these are the true words of God there will be a day brethren there will be a day when we will see that face to face When we will proclaim those verses, those praises, we will physically, in the presence of the Father and the Son, we will proclaim, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. There will be a day when we will come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we will eat, and we will drink, And we will rejoice. Pray with me. Father, we believe that we are the temple of God, that your spirit dwells with us. Lord, we believe that we have joined with the heavenly chorus to proclaim hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Father, we long for the day when Christ will return. When the bridegroom will come. The bride has made herself ready. Clothed herself with fine linen, bright and pure. The righteous deeds of the saints. We long for the day when we are able to come to the table with Christ at the head. And rejoice. Father, I pray that we would not take these things lightly, but that we would take very seriously the foundation that we are building. Whether it is the, the pastor preaching or Sunday school teachers teaching lessons to the kids, whether it is parents instructing their children in the way of the Lord, or it is the spurring on of one another toward loving good deeds, the righteous, righteous deeds of the saints. Lord, we We pray that we would be building on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the true cornerstone. Remind us of these things, Lord, even as we come to the table this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.